Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2016, volume 54, number three. My name is David Zackley. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month looks at the issue of testosterone replacement therapy and examines some of the controversies uh, that surround this topic. James, do you want to give us a bit of background to this one? So we're talking about late-onset hypogonadism here, sometimes called the andropause or the male menopause. So we're not dealing with primary hypogonadism. Uh, What we've seen over the last few years is there's definitely been a development in the therapeutic world with the idea that uh, men, like women, um, have a menopause and have a deficiency in testosterone, which leads them to have problems such as metabolic syndrome, lack of muscle bulk, poor exercise, fatigue, lack of libido, all these um, things. And, And what's developing is a narrative that suggests that this exists, that if we give testosterone replacement, that somehow we will make men uh, feel better. And we just really deal with that narrative and that story in our editorial. So is our concern that this is being pushed inappropriately, or is it through a lack of evidence, or is it through a lack of knowledge? Well, I think it's all three things. I think the feeling we have at the moment is that there is a push to start treating men for late-onset hypogonadism when there really isn't enough evidence to demonstrate that the benefits that they might get will have any clinical significance and that we haven't absolutely clear in our minds that there aren't long-term adverse effects of this treatment either. So there is something from the, or a controversy between both the American and European medicines regulators about the potential harms of testosterone replacement therapy. Which way round is it at the moment? So what we've got is uh, we have the FDA saying that they are still concerned that there are increased cardiovascular events in men taking testosterone replacement therapy. And we have the European Medicines Agency um, who issued a decree in nine, uh, 2014 suggesting that there were no concerns about increased cardiovascular risk. So we have this dichotomy from our regulators, which doesn't help things um, and just for, sort of really further muddies the water. So uncertainty about harms, certainty about benefits? Well, this is it. We, you know, the, the evidence often has looked at proxy markers. So it looks at things like insulin resistance or... Uh, bone mass or um, muscle mass and um, it really is unclear in many of these studies what the clinical significance of that might be and very often as well in the studies themselves there's considerable heterogeneity about the results and about the men involved in the studies. So not saying that this is something you should never do but just that actually we should be asking for much better evidence more evidence and a bit more science behind it before this becomes something that is widespread or or it's adopted widespread. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, people, some of us who are quite long in the tooth now will think back to the time when HRT was first developed and there was a general consensus that it was a good thing and that women should uh, perhaps be taking it. And a lot of women came to their GP saying, you know, should I be taking HRT and perhaps ended up on it because they felt it was the right thing to do for them. And of course, what we've subsequently discovered is that there are drawbacks for being on HRT for women, and I'm sure there'll be drawbacks for being on HRT for men. And let's not forget that the big issue here is sometimes the very conditions that are being suggested uh, that HRT for men, testosterone gel for men, will improve 
their outcome can be just as easily uh, improved through lifestyle choices, losing weight, exercise, those sorts of simple uh, processes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, our first article this month looks at a new antidepressant. Vortioxidine has been licensed and launched for the management of major depression in adults. What do we know about Vortioxidine? What is it? So this is a, a new class um, of uh, antidepressant which works on the serotonin system. It actually works on a number of different receptors, both as an antagonist and as an agonist. So it's um, slightly different uh, from standard uh, antidepressants. And as a consequence, there are it's felt that it may have also some benefits as a result of that. And part of its marketing claim appears to be that it has some effect on cognitive Yes, this is this is the big thing um, which is being suggested makes this antidepressant different from others. Uh, during the uh, research, the um, company looked at some cognitive functioning and demonstrated that patients taking vortioxetine actually had an improvement in their cognition, which was felt to be independent of any improvement in their depression. Okay, well, let's come back to that in a second. So first of all, it's been licensed and marketed on the basis of lots of trials? So we have about 10 or 11 placebo-controlled trials, and then we have a number of other sort of studies where they've used um, active comparators or they've used um, other antidepressants as an active arm of, of various sort of uh, eight-week treatment trials. But no direct comparisons with what we might regard as first-line treatment in this country, so citalopram, or fluoxetine, anything that gives us a comparison with standard antidepressant therapy? None at all. We've got um, a non-inferiority studies comparing with agomelatine, which obviously is a non-SSRI drug, and we have also one eight-week study comparing it in a non-inferior way to venlafaxine. But presumably the placebo control studies, which is what they have to do in order to get the license, showed that it works? Indeed. So it does something. Harms? Pretty good. Uh, nausea in the first week or so of uh, taking the drug is, is the main side effect. So um, there's no, no other obvious harms at that point. Obviously, all, as with all new drugs, long-term um, adverse events are difficult to pick up on the small studies that they've done so far. Okay, so in terms of efficacy, we can tick the box and say it does something compared with placebo. Harms seem to be about the same as other drugs, possibly slightly less mm, possibly. impact than some other other antidepressants. Indirect comparisons suggest it is similar in efficacy to other antidepressants. So it's marketing claim based on its effect on cognitive effect. Does that stand up? Yes, so the, the researchers did, as part of their trials, they looked at this digital substitution symbol test or digital symbol substitution test DSST and what this involves is you have 90 seconds and you have to match a symbol with a number and you have the matchings above it and you, you basically try and do this as many as you can and if you look at the studies uh, in the three arms there was a placebo arm there was the vortioxetine arm and there was a duloxetine arm and each of those arms sort of um, scored before they started the active drug, around 43 points. So they got 43 right answers, if you like, in those 90 seconds. And then if you looked at what happened after they'd been taking the 
drug or the placebo for uh, six weeks, what you find in the placebo arm is that there's been an increase in score by about three, I think it's about 2.8 something. So they've gone up from about 40, mid 40s to 47 or so. In the uh, vortioxetine, you see a five point rise. So we're talking about a 40, 40 mark, mid 40s overall, five more. And in the duloxetine, it was about a, a four increasing about four points so it's the question of course is is that clinically significant were those patients feeling sharper and brighter or is this just a statistical quirk and that's the bit that we really have no answer to at this stage so, so in terms of achieving what they needed to do to show that it does have a benefit they've done but the clinical significance and relevance of that on clinical practice is still a big unanswered question. And whether it compares, if you did this with all antidepressants, would you get the similar pattern? Well, this is this is the bit that I think we're increasingly finding happening in the sense that new drugs being uh, licensed, they're often looking at uh, little angles to see if they can de demonstrate an advantage over current treatment options without really demonstrating that the current treatment options don't do that anyway. And of course, we, we I've not seen any studies doing DSST scores on people taking fluoxetine or citalopram or any of the first-line treatments that we use now. And at the moment, National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence recommend it as... Yeah, this is an odd one, really. They, having, we have a drug here that's not been compared to first-line and is quite expensive. So they've not suggested it should be first-line. They've not suggested it should be second-line they've actually suggesting that it should be third line after you've tried the first two and and I, th I and that's a difficult one to quite understand why they've put it where they have and certainly you know having looked at the evidence it's difficult to understand why you would try a drug that's not yet been compared to uh, standard treatments and put it third line I, I just say I don't really understand the they obviously did a lot of um, cost effectiveness analyses and and the such but I just don't understand why it sits where it does in nice guidelines Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is called QT Interval and Drug Therapy. And we provide an overview of uh, the impact of drugs on the QT interval. But perhaps we should start by saying what is significant about the QT interval and why do we worry about it? And that's, a, and that's a really good question. And it's one I think has been worrying generalists in particular and prescribers for some time now. Uh, certainly, until recently, one never really worried too much about someone's ECG when one was prescribing drugs. And then over the years, there have been one or two incidences where things have come out of the woodwork. And I think tofenadine, the antihistamine that we used uh, in general practice back in the 1990s, that suddenly developed issues around cardiac arrhythmias. And we've, since then, we've had other examples as well where drugs have had impact on the heart. And what's come out of all this is that we've realized that there is this problem with some drugs that they impact on the electrical conductivity of of the heart and make it more prone to trigger torsade de point this rather fatal cardiac arrhythmia which um uh, is is you know obviously a really nasty uh, thing to have happen to anyone so there is this concern that if you prolong your qt interval you might increase or you do increase your risk of arrhythmia yep there are people who have a condition, inherited condition, whereby they're prone to a long QT 
interval anyway. So, yeah. so they're uh, of concern with any drug that might have an effect. But then there's the rest of the population who might have predisposing factors to a... Well, that's it. What What's an issue is that, you know, age has an impact, other drugs you're taking have an impact, other conditions have has an impact. So it is an is- issue that it's not just simple as saying that these drugs are the issue or this genetic susceptibility is an issue. You actually have to make an assessment of the patient on each case and work out whether you feel they're, they're high or low risk. And I mean, to give you an example, um, just in my own practice recently, elderly a woman who was on a multiple number of drugs because of uh, COPD and hypertension, ischemic heart disease. And there was talk about putting her on to another anti-muscarinic. And the question arose, well, well, will that impact on her QT interval? And, and of course, the question then arose, well, what's her risk? What is a QT interval? What's a, what's a bad QT interval? What do I do if I am thinking about trying this drug? Uh, and those sorts of questions are what we've tried to answer in our article. And are we well served by information or data on drugs that might have an impact on your QT? Well, whenever are we served, David, on you know good information on drugs? I mean, it's a difficult one. You're you're right to ask the question because actually there is no database kept in the UK on QT interval and those drugs that might impact on it. There is an American uh, site that was initially an academic site and is now funded by the FDA, which we quote in our in our article, which is useful. And of course, you know, you can always uh, count on the BNF to give you uh, an overview of those that are most at risk. But the BNF doesn't give you a sort of idea of if, if they're sort of medium risk. It just really only highlights the high risk drugs. So possibly a gap in, in our you know, support for prescribers as to where to go. Definitely. If you know yeah. what, need to know what, what to do. OK, thank you very much. To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and to provide any feedback or comments on our content, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.